Hello and welcome back to Murderland Chicago. My name is Jonathan Sanchez Leos and I'm here with Meredith Halsey. Today is part three, the finale of Patty Colombo, the suburban princess of death. That's the name that I'm giving her, Meredith. I hope you agree. Yeah. Um, and we are basically finishing up with this tale and talking about why it is that Patty Colombo was talked about way after these murders. Because as we will see, she had quite a reputation <laughs> when she yeah. was in prison <laughs> that we're going to have to unpack here. Also, Meredith, I have a couple of updates that I want to share um, right off the bat. It is October. It is spooky month. Are you watching horror films this month? Yeah, I've been watching um, a, a couple of things. I saw Biohazard, oh, which is okay. a Fred Olin Ray kind of sci-fi horror mm -hmm. movie, and mm -hmm. uh, just watched Dire Wolf also. Oh, yeah. I, the, the second one sounds very appealing to me. <laughs> it's also a Fred Olin Ray movie. It's terrible. <laughs> But it's, you know, it's a dire wolf. It's attacking people. Yeah. Well, as people can probably imagine, Meredith and I, just by benefit of the theme of this podcast, are horror fans. And I was rewatching Exorcist 1 and 3 because I always skip 2. And what I realized nice. that I did not, it just didn't click for me, was that we and this podcast have referenced the movie Cruising quite often. And I did not realize that William Friedkin, who is the director of Exorcist 1 and Exorcist 3, was the director for Cruising 2. Oh, really? Right? Did you find that there were similarities in kind of the yes. style? Like yeah, what? like just tonality, kind of like the gloominess that he was able to kind of put into Exorcist. This might be a little too horror podcast, you know, nerdy for people, but Exorcist 3 to me is the best one. And I think it's the most like cruising because mm -hmm. there's also in cruising a detective who has to investigate these crimes. There's just, there's a lot of parallels between cruising and Exorcist 3 that when I realized, oh wow, same director, it all just kind of synced up together for me. So was very excited about that. That's also, awesome. on the sadder side, um, I do think we have to address the fact that uh, this week Dick Butkus died, uh, who is one of the, if we're talking about pillars of Chicagoness, uh, he was probably one of the biggest. And when <laughs> I read about Dick Butkus dying. Obviously, I thought about all of the elementary school jokes that every Chicagoan kid made, mm -hmm. but also just the fact that, you know, when we talk about the nature and character of Chicago, they just don't make them like that anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that that's an old school Chicago that I think we reference a lot in this podcast that um, hopefully will be reborn. <laughs> Bring back the Dick Butkus joke. <laughs> hey, I thought they were great. Okay, like I, hey, I don't, I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to uh, realize that I was the kid in elementary school that made the Dick Butkus jokes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, very sad to see him pass. Would love for people to start making Dick Butkus jokes again. It really was funny because, you know, I, I heard the name in the news and I was like, whoa, that's a blast from the past. How do I know that name? Right. Yeah. 
right? Yes. But we're not here to talk about Dick Butkus. Uh, we are here to talk about Patty Colombo. Mm-hmm. So after the trial, Patty Colombo obviously goes to jail. And again, one of the things that the media really picked up on was the fact that people like Patty Colombo did not go to maximum security prisons. Mm-hmm. Why? She was young, she was white, she was pretty. Meredith, you've seen pictures of her. Can you talk a little bit about what Patty's image was and how and why people really were just kind of like fascinated by her? Well, I mean, she was picture perfect. Yeah. Right. There's a reason you keep on bringing up these John Hughes movies. It's because she could have starred in one of them. Oh, she, definitely. Yeah. She was very slender, um, stylish. She also has the perfect haircut and styling for the age. Yes. Um, not quite Farrah Fawcett hair. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. little different, but that's kind of the style that she's going for. It's feathered. It's long. It seems effortless. Yep. And that's the thing in the photos. She seems like she's posing. Uh, one thing that is just like, I don't know if it's weird to notice, but it's the 70s. And so we're mm-hmm. kind of like culturally fresh off of the burning bra situation. Mm-hmm. She's not wearing a bra in any of these photos. And I yeah. think like the guys really like that one. I, yes, I, I'm so glad you brought this up because mm-hmm. one of the things that I really thought about when looking at her pictures was mm-hmm. it reminded me of Casey Anthony. Okay? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the reason being that Casey Anthony, for her time, right, was also considered to be attractive, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I We did have a very warped idea of style back in the early aughts. I <laughs> was it that long ago, really? Yeah, it was that long ago. It was... Wow. It, it was it's been a couple okay. decades, you know, but but yes, granted, we had a very different perspective back then. And we mm-hmm. obviously thought Juicy Couture and, you know, glitter makeup was pretty. But she did embody kind of the femininity of that time that men really found attractive. Yeah. And there was a time when Casey Anthony was considered to be a sex symbol. Mm-hmm. And I think what we see with her is that that kind of, I, I don't want to call it, it's not overt sexuality, because it's exactly what you're saying. It's like, it's not wearing a bra in a picture. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Well, you're fully clothed. It's this kind of subversive, like, even though this is obviously is a non-sexual picture, it's, it's inserting that sexuality into it, yeah. right? And the reason, obviously, that we are talking about sexuality and Patty Colombo is because Patty Colombo would become a sex symbol within the prison system. So, later in 1979, while incarcerated, it became widely reported that she had quote-unquote participated in sex orgies involving guards and wardens at her prison in Dwight, Illinois, about 60 miles southwest of Chicago. For those of you in the area, that's about 15 minutes southwest from Joliet and Stateville prisons. But in Patty's case, it was rumored that she wasn't just a participant. It was widely reported that she had organized the orgies herself and served as the head of a what was called a prostitution ring. 
Meredith, what do you make of these claims? It's hard to accept the story that she was leading a prostitution ring from behind bars, <laughs> even if she wasn't in a maximum security prison like Stateville. Yeah. How much agency do prisoners really have? Yeah. And like, that, that's what I, I myself put participant in quotation marks. Right. Exactly. Okay. Sure, an orgy. You know, I don't know how much of Patty's experience of prison was like Orange is the New Black. Right. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Maybe there were. I'm sure if there were um, the participants, if they were participating willingly, had a lot of fun Mm -hmm. and good on them. Yeah. Um, But prostitution implies payment. And I just don't think that was happening. Unless they're really stretching the definition and like maybe like future favors or cigarettes right. were the payment. I think it's like salacious. It may be blowing something up and making it sound more salacious than it was. Oh, 100%. And I think the fact that they use the word prostitution, to yeah. your point, is very much kind of it nodding to this consensual nature that mm-hmm. I doubt was there. You bring up Orange is the New Black, which I think is a, is a great analogy here, because putting Patty behind bars, I'm, I'm going to put this out there. Okay, I'm going to put it on the table, pick it up if you want to. But I feel like by putting her behind bars, you kind of created the narrative to a male sexual fantasy mm. that was it, it, it was hinted of <laughs> – in the yeah. press by putting her in jail, but it was unrealized because no one ever knew what happened afterwards. And I feel like that a lot of this is a fantasy that has been projected onto her. Yeah. Are you picking it up? I think that's probably as likely as the actual claims. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one other thing that I think uh, supports your point is... Just like today, clicks drive revenue for yes. the news media. Mm-hmm. And in 1977, it's the headlines that would yep. cause people to like put in the quarter or however much it, it costs for a newspaper and, and buy it out of the newspaper box. So I could absolutely see it's a slow news day and somebody's like, hey, whatever happened to Patty Colombo? And yep. same thing with Casey Anthony now, because she still grabs a headline occasionally on a slow news day. Yeah, she does. The fact that Casey Anthony is still a draw, I think is very much connected to why Patty Colombo was still selling papers two mm-hmm. years after she had already been found guilty and sentenced, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, what we also need to remember is that simultaneous to these claims, there was also an investigation that had begun in 1977 at the prison in Dwight, Illinois, when an attempted escapee had basically said in her defense that she was escaping because of all of the, quote, sick lesbian sex, unquote, happening there. So... (laughs) You're talking about Orange is a New Black. <laughs> also, like, what is this person? Like, a born-again Christian? Like, what, who says that? I mean, this is the late 1970s, you know what I'm saying? Like, sexual revolution is over, okay? <laughs> People are put in 
their puritanical habits back on in America. Okay. <laughs> um, obviously, she was scandalized by what she saw mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was credible enough to kick off an official investigation. Okay. Yeah. There were two wardens at the time, John Platt and Charlotte Sutliff Nesbitt. But the internal investigation found nothing, obviously. And just for for all to be on the same page, whenever an organization says that they're going to be doing an, quote, internal investigation, unquote, it means they're going to do nothing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because what are they going to find? Like, unless they, they had the equipment back in 77 and the funding in Illinois to do secret cameras everywhere and including the bathrooms, which, you know, that brings up some serious rights violations, doesn't it? Like, don't people yeah. have the right to, like, not be observed in the bathroom and that's why all the sex happens there, you know? Uh, yeah. Also, just a little legal advice out there. Um when you are a lawyer and you are inside counsel for an organization and you are tasked to do an internal investigation, you are compelled to sh- to report out any findings that might be negative to your company. Okay. However, if you hire out a lawyer that is independent, they are not required to do that. So oh, almost every organization will hire out those lawyers, right, at very expensive price tags because those lawyers are under no obligation to report out what they find, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a lot of companies will basically kind of split the baby and they will do an internal investigation where they'll find a couple of things, right, Mm -hmm. and then kind of put everything else under the rug so that they're not forced to do what happened here, which is the federal government said, you didn't do a good enough job with your internal investigation now we have to do an outside investigation. And oh. Meredith, what do you think the outside investigation found? Well, I kind of know. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's that's not good. Because that means that there's motivation of like, okay, we want to find something wrong. And they won't stop until they do. And mm-hmm. in this case, it looks like they found cases of sexual assault. Which yeah. also, in a prison, I'm not surprised. Yeah. If you look... You'll find that. So in this case, what were the consequences? First, let's get to the findings, all right? Because you were very right, sexual assault, S.A., all over the place. Mm -hmm. Namely, though, that they were being perpetrated by senior staff members and also Mm -hmm. by guards, obviously. Mm -hmm. What was also kind of a huge red flag back then was that they did find evidence of sex parties happening. Okay, and that these sex parties were basically at the request of the security chief at the time, and that they were being organized by an, quote, inmate secretary, unquote. And as you can probably guess, many have made the connection, dubious connection, all right, Right. because there is no evidence saying that this was, in fact, Patty herself. Right. But many have said that the actual inmate secretary who was organizing these sex parties on behalf of the security chief was Patty Colombo. To answer your question, Meredith, the staff members were suspended and terminated. But what do you think about all of this? Well, good. (laughs) Okay. So people are put in prison for all sorts of reasons ranging from they killed their entire family like patty mm-hmm. colombo 
all the way to they were falsely accused and falsely convicted, like I'm sure many of or at least some of Patty Colombo's fellow inmates were at the time. And we also know, because we are adults in this country, that sexual assault happens. And just because somebody is in prison doesn't mean that they deserve to be assaulted. Right. It's completely wrong. You know, like the punishment is the term that they're serving, their sentence that they're serving. The punishment is not sexual assault or any other violence or any other like extras that the guards and wardens decide to dole out. So that's good. I'm glad that these people were discovered and lost their jobs. Do I believe that all perpetrators of sexual assault at that time or ever were discovered and lost their jobs? Absolutely not. That's an ongoing miscarriage of of justice that is disgusting. Um, Do I believe that people stopped talking about it and stopped reporting it as soon as it stopped selling papers? Also, yes. Well, I, I agree with all of it. And I really love your point about the punishment you get is your sentence. It is mm-hmm. not the added intimidation or sexual violence that occurs when you are in jail. It's one of the reasons why I hate all of these like scared straight shows where they take, you know, like bad teenagers to a prison and then all of the prison guards basically kind of try to one up each other and say that, you know, you're going to be someone's wife up in here. Right. Right. It upsets me because, one, I did used to work in a prison. You know, I, I worked in, in juvie. Um, and the population I worked with was the automatic transfer unit, which were if you were charged as an adult in Chicago or in Cook County, if you were sentenced to adult time as a child, you were basically kind of kept by yourself until you're 17. And then once you turn 17, it is a, that's why they call it the AT unit, you are automatically transferred into general population. Okay. Mm. Oh, yikes. 17 still pretty young. Yes. Honestly, it, it is, it's a travesty. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because you're sending 17-year-old kids into a prison environment. One of the things that we would have to do, because I was a social worker at that time, was prepare them and explain to them, you know, what to expect when they would go into that unit. Because, you know, the the juvenile unit is much nicer. It's not nice, okay? But it's much nicer than the adult side. My supervisor told me when I first started the job, and he was training me on, like, how to do this, you know, kind of orientation, if you want to call it, right? He said, you have to stress to them that it's not a question of if they're going to get sexually assaulted. It's a question of when they're going to get sexually assaulted Mm -hmm. because it's going to happen because they're 17 years old. Okay. We talked about the dialectic last week, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) According to the dialectic, they are the sexually vulnerable population there, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What pissed me off, though, was kind of the blind eye taken to it. When I would talk about it with other people, because I think for so many people in our culture, it is kind of a given or it's kind of like a, you know, nudge, nudge joke. Like, oh, well, you did something to deserve that. And so obviously you're going to go to prison and you're going to be someone's bitch. Right. right? That's not our fucking penal system. And if that is, that's horrible. There there should be no world where, okay, you're going to get punished by getting raped. It's maddening because I think in a lot of this conversation with Patty Colombo, getting lost in the fog of, you know, male sexual fantasy is the fact that she had no agency. Because if you're an inmate, you cannot have sex consensually. 
That is mm-hmm. just baseline here. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so the fact that people tried to impart this agency on her, I think, is really unfortunate. And also, I think the second thing that you bring up that I really think is pertinent here is the fact that whenever you have one of these investigations and some heads have to roll, they are very, very strategic about which heads roll. I think you are 100% right. I don't think that all the heads rolled that should have rolled. I think they picked and chose, right, which heads needed to roll in this particular instance. Because this never goes away from Dwight prison or any other prison, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The job of prison guard and warden and, and all the other jobs at a prison seems to attract people who are seeking opportunities to abuse power over others. Yes. And they identify working in a prison as a place where they can basically do that unimpeded. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like how many police departments attract a certain kind of man who's looking for an excuse to carry a gun and wants to shoot somebody. And I I know it's not all police officers. Sure. Yeah. There's no way to say with 100% certainty. uh, Is it a lot of cops? I'm going to say, yeah. And I think that what you were saying is correct. We as a society, because we do not care about the people that they are interacting with, we don't really put any limits or measures to control for the type of person that is interacting with those populations. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to Patty Colombo, you know, people really didn't care what happened to her. Obviously, she committed an atrocious crime. Okay, mm-hmm. killing your family, you know, <laughs> I don't think you or I are saying that. Oh, no. <laughs> that deserves a slap on the wrist. But, you know, I think the point that I'm trying to draw out is that because she was so sexualized, going back to when she first met fucking Frank DeLuca, mm-hmm. uh, this took a very weird turn. And, you know, as I was doing this research, I came across a headline from the Toronto Sun during this time, which said, Patty, the baddest little girl in Chicago's deadly sexploits. Oh, my God. Just to remind everyone here, we're talking about a girl who had been routinely sexually molested, abused, and assaulted, who basically just had no idea about who she was anymore. You know, I I would almost say even if she was the secretary... All right, like the 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 secretary on the grassy knoll, right? If she was that secretary, can you really blame her? She was basically doing the role that had been imparted to her her entire fucking life. You know, one of the things that I ended up reading too in an interview with her was that she said, quote, there was a lifestyle that Frank introduced me to that included sex with other couples with other people. Yeah. Unquote. And I think the word here that I want to just circle, highlight, underline is lifestyle. Mm-hmm. This was the only lifestyle she knew. Yeah. You know, she, she goes to jail before she's even 20. Well, she's in jail when she's 20, but she's, yeah. she's arrested when she's 19 years old. Mm-hmm. She didn't know anything else. I right. mean, what, what do you make of this, Meredith? Well, setting aside the reason that she's in prison... Because she's in prison, she is now in the category of people that it's totally fine for us in our culture and modern society to dunk on. That's just 
one of the, I don't even know if it's unwritten rules of how our media behaves um, Mm -hmm. and how we behave as a result, right? Like we're able to make fun of serial killers. We're able to make fun of people in prison Mm -hmm. because they have transgressed, because they have been found guilty, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I'm not saying that's right, but I'm saying it's an aspect of our culture right now. Mm -hmm. And 1977 was not that long ago. Mm -hmm. The culture is basically the same in that respect. Mm -hmm. And I was, yeah, she's a murderer. Yes, she's also being re-victimized, mm-hmm. and people are hitting that button extra hard because it's salacious and will sell papers, and she's in the category of people that it's okay to make fun of, um, but also she's still being like victimized in this respect. Mm-hmm. So it's a really useful example to understand through our collective treatment of Patty Colombo what other people are going through who did not kill their families, but who yes. were also victimized from childhood through mm-hmm. young adulthood. Um, and how that still in our culture at this time seems to be in the okay category. It's excusing it. Yeah. yeah. It's excusing the behavior for people who are in the situation. You know, we are able to highlight it more with Patty, mm-hmm. but it's still the same dynamic. And if I'm going to put on my clinical social worker hat here for a second, you know, please do. <laughs> One of the impacts of childhood sexual trauma is that even when the teenager is a willing participant, sex with adults distorts what is supposed to be a period of exploration and discovery, which means your period to really explore what you want is halted. And so you do not have the full definition of what that means to you. We touched on this before about kind of the ongoing impact of sexual abuse, but I always remember what you had mentioned about your older sister when you guys watched Sleeping with the Enemy. Meredith shared that her older sister, during a kind of sexy scene, right, shared... Mm-hmm. Y- you tell us. <laughs> so in Sleeping with the Enemy, the movie opens on a scene of characters played by Julia Roberts and some tall, dark, and handsome guy, I don't know his name, having sex. And... We have a close-up of Julia Roberts' face, and when her husband is not looking at her, she's not having a good time, but then he finishes and looks at her, and she, like, immediately puts a smile on her face, and my sister, like, paused and rewound that scene to say, like, look, watch her face. Like, this is what that means. She's not having a good time until he's looking at her, Uh, and it really, you know, for my young mind... (laughs) Well, I it, it also uh, had an effect on my old mind because I thought about it for a really long time. You know, I think there is a reason why when you are a teenager, it is important to try everything at the buffet. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There is a reason why you are supposed to, you know... Do as much as you can, right? And mm-hmm. and really kind of, you know, have all these little boyfriends here and there and do whatever. Because really, you're, you're trying to figure out what you actually like. Yeah. And the fact that when you are a young person who is being taken advantage of by an older person sexually, yeah. you know, the thing that you don't realize is that they are 
basically fencing off your area of sexual pleasure to the point where that's the only way that you are going to know how to have pleasure in the future. And to me, Patty screams this, mm-hmm. you know, and they really try hard to pin this all on her, right? Yeah. At the prison, yeah. which is sad because again, she was a fucking prisoner and it's not really probable <laughs> she yeah. was the mastermind behind this, you know? Right. Did she go to prison at age 20 and introduce <laughs> the idea of sex orgies? I doubt it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, if that's the case, then this conversation is all moot because, wow. <laughs> but uh, I also doubt it because, you know, anybody listening, whether they are, you know, just shy of 20, exactly age 20 right now, or mm-hmm. have age 20, 20 years in the rear view mirror, think about the agency that you had at that age and how unsure oh of God, yourself. Yeah. yeah. Show up at a prison and like change the entire culture overnight? I don't think so. But she did make headlines. And so the name is synonymous with sex parties in Chicago yeah, media. It is. And I think to your point here, Dwight Correctional Facility would again and again be stung by additional accusations of sexual abuse happening to its prisoners by guards. In response to a 1996 investigation by the Department of Corrections, which is well after Patty was already transferred to a different prison, Susan Wydell, who was the chief legal counsel of the Illinois Department of Corrections, said, There are definitely instances where the inmate has manipulated the staff and very intentionally developed relationships. But it is preposterous and ridiculous to suggest that female inmates who are involved in sexual misconduct with male staff should receive no discipline. Meredith, (laughs) I feel like there is a special place in hell for women who do not support women, you know what I'm saying? But I can't speak to that, obviously. What do you think about the PR statement from uh, Ms. Whitell? I mean, I'm surprised that such a statement comes from legal counsel. Yeah, it's charged. Shouldn't she know better about the law and the ability to consent? Or was the law different in 96, which is entirely plausible that I just don't know it. It is, but I I, I agree with you. It's, it is, it's, it's not what you would expect. I think, again, we're, we're saying this with 2023 kind of like goggles on, right? Yeah. But it is not what you would expect from a chief legal officer. And she's basically putting out there, to your point here, she's putting out the elements for statutory rape. It, it, to me, it's wild, okay? Yeah. Again, my experience working in prisons kind of gives me a little bit of some sensitivity to this subject. Mm-hmm. But the fact that a lawyer is speaking so glibly about something so horrendous as staff and inmate sexual relationships <laughs> is it, it, it just leaves me with my mouth proverbially open. I just, yeah. I, 
I think it's atrocious, Meredith. Like, how can you even say that that an inmate somehow mm-hmm. should be punished for intentionally developing a relationship? It just sounds so kind of in line with that old men's rights kind of verbiage of, mm-hmm. well, she was asking for it. Yeah. Uh, just makes me disgusted. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, like, you just really have to recognize when you are in a position of power over others and not abuse that. And if you are in a position to supervise those who are in a position of power over others, watch out for the signs of abuse, because there are those who seek out those positions on purpose to abuse them. And we know this is an issue because a lot of our society is set up around this kind of dynamic. So like Mm -hmm. school, daycare, there's yeah. systems set up in place to to see if the kids are being abused and if they are, you know, remove them from the situation and, and seek remedies. But in mm-hmm. prisons, that's just not there, again, because yeah. we put them in the bucket of, well, they transgressed, even yeah. though, you know, not everybody's there for murder. Mm-hmm. Plenty of people are in there falsely accused or just for like, I don't know, theft, stealing food. <laughs> Like, stuff that, like, yeah, that's against the law, but, like, is the nature of the punishment of getting raped, like, really commensurate with, like, shoplifting? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, (laughs) what happened? So, uh, whereas Patty was a sexual symbol of the 70s that kept on giving in the 80s, Frank DeLuca was not a sexual symbol, (laughs) (laughs) unsurprisingly, we didn't really hear a lot about him outside of his very occasional parole meetings. And Frank DeLuca does not age well okay and meredith i'm I'm gonna send you a couple pictures here because i want you to look at him and i want you to kind of collect your thoughts as to (laughs) what happened you know but the the latest parole meeting that we have notes for is in 2014 when it was reported that his health was not great he was walking with a cane had reported hip and prostate problems um, he knew that he was probably not going to be paroled and said that to the officers. But he said that if he were to be paroled, he would love to live with his son or his brother back down in Florida. But we haven't had another parole hearing for him because he's dead. <laughs> he actually died this year in 2023 on January 4th at 1235 a.m. And uh, it did not really make a lot of headlines because... People really didn't care about him. So can you kind of give us a uh, an analysis as to the aging process of Frank DeLuca, Meredith? So first off, he was quite a bit older than yeah. Patty Colombo. So the photo of him is like, oh my gosh, that's a really old guy. He was a really old guy. He lived. <laughs> Until 2023, and he's been in prison. In prison is a hard life. The quality of food isn't great. The quality of your shelter isn't great. I think he was in his 80s when he died, but the photo, he looks like he's in his mid or upper 90s. Yes, thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Bald, no teeth, just, you know, uh, haunted eyes. Ooh, them eyes, girl. Mm -hmm. Them eyes. You know, you get like somebody who's very elderly and they're just, they're confused. Yes. And they're staring at you because they don't know whether to be afraid of you. Yep. That's the look he's given to the camera. Yeah. To me, what is especially shocking 
is to look at his arrest picture. Like you said, when he was arrested, oh, yeah. he was he was already like in his I think like 30s. late 30s at this point, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> but he looks like what my straight female friends tell me is attractive for a man. Meredith, correct me if I'm wrong. You know, we had a similar conversation uh, when talking about, <laughs> who are we talking about? Ted Bundy? We talked about that with Ted Bundy, and we talked about it with Larry Eiler. The oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because both were reported to be very attractive in the news. Okay. Yes. The arrest photo of Frank DeLuca, he looks... Oh. <laughs> Hot or not, okay? (laughs) Oh, well, here, it's... Okay, because there's always the, like, you don't want to be on the record saying, like, this guy was hot, you know? Like, killed a bunch of people. But here's the thing. He's giving a little bit of Joaquin Phoenix in the Joker vibes. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Yes, I can hear. He's got that kind of long hair... You know, if you're attracted to a specific kind of guy, mm-hmm. and I've, like, known these people, they will fall at the feet of somebody like this. Like, I mean, somebody who looks like this, not a Yes. Killer. Yes. So, yes, he's attractive. He's not my type. But, uh, you know, I look at the picture, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I see why Patty was at 15 years old, head over heels. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. The, the thing is, is that as an outsider, because as a gay man... I also, as you know, like my I like my men a little bit more burly, if you will. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like them a little bit more on the Gaston side of things. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I personally cannot see like how Frank DeLuca would have been considered attractive, but what he does look like to me is. Every time I've ever talked to a straight female friend who mm-hmm. was head over heels in love with some guy who had made her life a living fucking hell. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, can you just show me a picture? Because I want to be able to kind of like visualize who this person is that has basically kind of taken your credit and everything else in your life like to fucking hell. Yeah. They always show me a picture of a dude who looks like this. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I think the Joaquin Phoenix thing, I see that. I'm seeing, like, just every, like, 90s Jonathan Taylor Thomas-esque crush Mm. here, right? Chris Cornell. This is a Chris Cornell type from uh, Soundgarden. Yes, yes. It's it's, it's kind of dark. It's a little moody, but still model-ready. Probably aided by all the pharmacy uh, drugs that he was stealing. Oh, yeah, very much so. Because he was too old to be that skinny. You're very much onto something here because he does not look like he is in his 30s in this arrest picture. However, you look at his IDOC picture, Illinois Department of Corrections, his IDOC picture, he looks like the Crypt Keeper. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is a crazy transition to see for him. On the other hand, we have Miss Patty. At her age now, I think she's, she's aged pretty well. Yeah. So she's in her 60s, right? Let's do the math here. So in 1978, she was 20 years old. And no, I think she was in 78, in, in 76 or 77. But yes. yes. Yeah. So okay. like 20, and now we are in, so that was how many years ago? 80, Over 40. I was like 40. more. So she's in her late 60s. Mm-hmm. 
she looks great for her age. I would have pegged her from this photo uh, being late 50s. Yeah. Same, girl. Mm -hmm. Same. And this is her, like, this is, obviously there's no hair dye in prison, right? So she can't really touch up the roots, you know? There's no hair dye, but she's got a full head of hair. Thick hair. Yeah. A blessing. A blessing. (laughs) No, I mean, I'm losing my hair and I'm 41. I was like, what what happened? Why Why does she keep her hair? I really hope that Patty has found a kind of peace in jail, Mm. you know, Uh, as we've said before in our conversation about her, we're not trying to excuse her actions whatsoever, but there is a sort of, I'm going to say sympathy that I feel for the fact that she really was sexualized to the point of obliviating any other form of identity that she could possibly have. You know what I'm saying? And like Frank DeLuca, the information that we have about Patty comes from her parole hearings, which she has also mm-hmm. occasionally had. And like Frank DeLuca, probably will never actually obtain. Right. Uh, but it has been reported that Patty was the first female inmate in Illinois to obtain her bachelor's degree in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she's also the longest serving female prisoner. It's kind of widely reported that she's seen as a mother figure amongst the other inmates and that she also likes to tutor illiterate inmates as well. But again, (laughs) always a word of caution when it comes to parole hearings, because these are not obviously cross-examined whatsoever. And really, you can kind of say anything you want to (laughs) say. Yeah, and it's on the record. Yeah, it's on the record. People like us are like, ooh, what did they say? I mean, it's our one little glimpse into it, right? Yeah. But, you know, Patty is currently serving her sentence at Logan Correctional Center, located in Lincoln, Illinois, a suburb of Springfield, Illinois. (laughs) Meredith, what do you think about, you know, all of this? I have conflicted feelings because, like you, I have a lot of empathy for the child that she was. Yep. But, like, she killed her family. (laughs) I know. (laughs) You know, I don't think she should get out. I think if ever there was yeah. a good reason for a life sentence, that's yeah. it. That's a really good Ugh. reason. I am not an advocate for the death penalty. and Neither am I. I, I yeah. think I've shared that I'm conflicted about that as well, because, you know, we do have the John Wayne Gacy's of the world that, yes. you know. However, I think Patty got a sentence that was deserved. Um, I think she should stay behind bars. I think a life sentence is a life sentence and she should serve that out. I think that Frank DeLuca, um, same, that he died behind bars and that was justice. Mm -hmm. Her parents didn't get to live out their lives. Her brother didn't have a life. You know, he didn't get to do anything. Yeah. So... Meredith, always the voice of reason on this podcast when my emotions take me to extreme places. Yes, I just to all of it. I like you. I have very conflicted feelings about the death penalty because, you know, on this podcast, we talk about people who have done horrendous fucking things. You know what I'm saying? Like Robin Gecht, whatever the worst case of fucking capital punishment there is, that's what I want for him. You know what I'm saying? Right. The problem with the law, though, is that we have to apply it evenly. And it's really hard to create rules that are 
for everyone. But I, I would agree. I think that this is justice. I do not think that she should ever get parole. What she did was horrendous. And even though, like you, I have a lot of empathy for her as a child, um, you know, and I do find it also very sad just how she was treated in the media as a penal playmate, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's no excuse. For the fact that she took three lives and, you know, did so willingly, you know, like we like we talked in the last episode, you know, she was for lack of a better term, she was fucking those two dudes who told her that they were going to kill her family. She did that repeatedly because she was hoping that she could get them to do it. When you start thinking about that, it's just like, yeah, she 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 deserves what she got. She did it, you know, And I, yes, we've also talked about the fact that there is some conflicting testimony as to whether or not she was the one that actually committed the killings themselves. Mm-hmm. But there is nothing that tells us that she did not actively participate in the planning for it. So that is the conclusion to our three-part series on Patty Colombo. And also... The conclusion to season two of Murderous Duos, Meredith. So what have we learned thus far about murder committed by two people? By two people. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think this was a really interesting exploration this season. Uh, To recap, we did Larry Eiler and Dr. Robert Little, Leopold and Loeb, and then Patty Colombo and Frank DeLuca. Yeah. A big theme was image. Yes. So from Eiler's machismo, he like tried to embody the masculine man. Yep. To Leopold and Loeb's status markers. They were yes. so wealthy, they could do anything. They had the they rented the ostentatiously luxury car to commit a murder yeah. in. Yeah. And then to Patty Colombo's suburban prestige, part of her motivation in planning the murder of her parents was to reap a financial windfall to maintain yep. that image. Yeah. I mean, I think I think what you bring up is a really good point. The, the image here, we're dealing with three people who have masks on for society. Mm-hmm. And you look at Larry Eiler. Larry Eiler... There is a juxtaposition that is so evident in each one of these cases because Larry Eiler, even though he's projecting this image of this dominant marine t-shirt wearing, combat boots, truck driving, alpha male, okay, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, never fucking served in the Marines, all right, was never even in the fucking military, did not do a job that required a fucking truck. All of this was for show. Yeah. You go to Leopold and Loeb, both masquerading as intellectuals, one of them literally committing a murder in his birding suit. Okay? Yes. (laughs) The height of absurdity. (laughs) The dumbest criminals, I'm going to say, we ever covered. Okay? Yeah. While ironically being reportedly the most intelligent criminals. But you look at the two of them... This masquerading of being, oh, we're so hyper-intelligent, we're, we're above all, and then smash cut to the trial, and what is their defense attorney saying? They weren't prepared for the psychological and philosophical challenges of Nietzschean philosophy. It's like, 
which one are you? You know? And then finally getting to Patty DeLuca. Patty DeLuca is, yes, outside, sexualized, you know, white, suburban princess. Deep down inside, though, she is an abused little girl. All three cases, they are all trying to project onto the world a persona that is so jarringly distinct from who they actually are. And I think what happens in each one of those cases is that that dissonance between who they are and who they pretend to be is able to be exploited by the secondary person who can basically weaponize the deceit and the fraudulence, right, yeah. of the presentation. Would you say that this is kind of like a um, a nice warning to individuals to, as much as possible, know themselves and stay true to themselves so that they do not open themselves up to this type of manipulation or attempted manipulation from oh. a partner or a friend? A hundred percent. I mean, I think there is a lot that we can learn from these situations, right? Yeah. And I think to echo something that my grandparents always said, no one is special. We're not special, right? right. Like mm-hmm. every, we're, we're all human beings and we're all wired the same fucking way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We've all experienced this, or if you're too young, you will experience this, uh, falling head over heels in love with someone yes. and truly in the core of you believing that that person is unique and special, Mm -hmm. you won't be able to believe otherwise because your Mm -hmm. body, your hormones, everything is working against you in that moment. Mm -hmm. But but please, in your head, in your your intellectually, retain the knowledge that this person Mm -hmm. that you truly believe is (laughs) the reason the sun rises and sets every day. They are also not special. <laughs> They're not special. And, and and the feeling that you're feeling for them is also not special. You know, there's a reason why every fucking song and poem and, you yeah. know, whatever is written about the same fucking thing. No one has ever loved like I have loved. Right. No, they have. Okay. We all mm-hmm. have. Right. And in these situations, what we're seeing is a pattern mm-hmm. of people who do not know themselves. Okay. Yeah. And this is maybe... A hot take. You correct me if, you know, you think that I'm wrong here. But I feel like in all three of these cases, the more kind of unwilling party, the not mastermind in each one, I feel would not have gone through with murder had it not been for the other individual. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I think there's an argument to be made there. Mm-hmm. I think that it cannot be a very strong argument because we just don't have the level of insight and information yeah. that we would need to. Yeah. So for Larry Eiler and Robert Little, like Robert Little exited from the spotlight as soon as he could and did not yep. leave a, a trail behind. So, you know, supports your hypothesis, but yeah. Yeah. we we don't have the evidence to like really get in there. Uh, Leopold and Loeb, similar, they kind of died in obscurity and were very unreliable narrators in their own yes, lives. That is true. Yes. And then Patty Colombo and Frank DeLuca, because of sharing a defense attorney, we do not have like high quality testimony. Yeah, to that's draw a good from. point. We don't have any disparate narrative to kind mm-hmm. of compare and contrast with them and. You are – I am projecting a little bit and assuming that Patty would not have killed had it not been for Frank DeLuca. But honestly, we don't know that. 
We know? don't know. I but I, I sympathize with your perspective here though. I think there's mm-hmm. an argument to be made, but we just we just can't know for sure. Yeah. Nonetheless, take <laughs> the message that everyone should be taking here is know yourself before you start getting involved in some with someone because if you are projecting a very different person than who you actually are, it is very easy for people who are trained manipulators mm-hmm. to exploit that. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is an element of that to be seen in each one of the cases that we have covered so far. Absolutely. And who's that um, congressman? George Santos. Yeah, his name just came to mind right now for yes. some reason. Yes, 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 yes. I have always, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna memorialize this shit on this podcast because I want to be able to record it for later. I have a theory that George Santos will be the first elected official that we will ever see have an OnlyFans account, explicit OnlyFans account. Oh, that's interesting. I think that he's going to have a fuck the congressman special okay and i also predict that it will have that it will be popular that it'll, it'll be successful this is my prediction okay you heard it here <laughs> 2023 well I, I should say we're recording this on october 7th 2023 yes. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i wanted to like set that down as part of your prediction Thank you. Time will tell. Time, Time will, tell. will tell. Yeah, but I, I, I feel That's like this, this yeah. could happen, you know? Yeah. yeah. So are there any other themes that you wanted us to talk about for this season? Just a couple of things that we can lightly touch on. Mm-hmm. Um, in contrast to season one, where we talked about the interplay of the near suburbs with the city limits, this season, we went a little bit further afield with Larry Eiler and Dr. Robert Little all the way to Indianapolis exploring the interplay of Chicago as a gay destination for all Midwesterners. Yes. And with Patty Colombo and Frank DeLuca coming from the old neighborhood, it's just mm-hmm. like West Chicago to uh, a near suburb, Elk Road Village, and then Leopold and Loeb. The city landscape was different 100 yes. years ago when they yes. were active, but they did reside within the city limits and kind of run out to Wolf Lake, which is... I think like part of Wolf Lake is Chicago and then like the other side of it isn't. So Yeah, the other half is Indiana. Yeah, exactly. Gary, but yeah, yeah. A hundred years ago, I don't think any of that was Chicago. So from their right. perspective, they were exiting the city. Oh, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. Yes, yes, yeah. So there is a little bit of that. Definitely always the suburbs and within the city limits are speaking to each other. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, it's the dialectic uh, defining ourselves by mm-hmm. each other. And then we also explored, at least with two of the cases, family murder, because yeah. Bobby Franks was a cousin to wow. Richard Loeb, mm-hmm. a second cousin, but still it's family. But still family. I didn't even think about that, but you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we don't know about all of Larry Eiler's kills because there was suspected additional ones and perhaps bodies that have not been found or identified. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm like dangling some possible <laughs> clickbait because we don't know of any family members that went missing, right? We don't, but it, it's a possibility. It's always a possibility. Anything's possible. Anything's possible. I do okay. think... 
in a situation with Larry Eiler, at, at some point to me, mm-hmm. Larry Eiler turns from fuck machine to kill machine. And yeah. then like in between is like the fuck kill machine. Mm-hmm. So he had been so desensitized to it by the end that he yeah. just didn't even give a fuck what he was doing. But I think there is a probability or a possibility that when he first started, that he probably targeted people that were very close to him. In the same way that Could we be. see with Leopold and Loeb mm-hmm. and with Patty Colombo and Frank DeLuca. Yep. Lending credence to the to the theory, Meredith. We're here to to support <laughs> <laughs> and help each other grow. Okay. Yes. yes. Uh so that wraps up season two. Yeah. I'm super proud of us. I'm, I I really think that this has been really helpful just to kind of really kind of create a little bit more structure around these conversations and realize mm-hmm. that like yeah. in order to have a conversation about serial killers, it needs to be a serial conversation, right? Yeah. And that you are looking across all of them to find what the commonalities yeah. are. So for season three, do you want to tell us what we have in store? Well, you've got another great theme for us. Thank you. (laughs) And that is Bermuda Triangles of Murder. Have you ever seen Drop Dead Gorgeous? No, I don't think so. Oh, my God. It's like a cult classic. It's um, Christy Alley plays this pageant mom in the 90s in Minnesota. Right. Mm -hmm. And they ask her, you know, how do you how do you come up with the themes for your uh, for your pageants? And she's like, oh, they're very different. She's like, you know, one was God bless America. One was I love being an American. Another one was (laughs) proud to be, you know, like the USA. And she's like, I don't know where I get it. It must be a gift from God or something. So (laughs) (laughs) this is your gift. (laughs) Is that I can take a number and come up with a bad pun. Yes. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, we've got three planned topics. And starting with Wolf Lake, which we're familiar with from this season in Leopold and Loeb. But the spoiler alert here is that they are not the only people to have tried to hide bodies in Wolf Lake. Another site is the LNL Tavern. And we talked about the LNL Tavern in season one because John Wayne Gacy was a patron of that particular establishment. Um, he was not the only serial killer who patronized that establishment. And third is a specific neighborhood in Chicago called Inglewood. This is one that I'm particularly excited about because when we initially did research back when we were trying to write the book, it was a very difficult research task to try and grasp what was happening in this neighborhood. Yeah. It reminded me of undergrad coursework and not in a good way. That's how difficult it was. So I'm excited to uh, share what we learned because I did not do all that work for nothing. (laughs) Well, I'm happy that we're doing it because I think the the reason why I – I don't want to use the word love because I never want to say the word love when talking about, you know, serial murder. But what I appreciate about this particular triangle that we're going to be talking about is the fact that 
it breaks so many of the quote unquote rules of serial killers that mm-hmm. so called experts try to say are hard and fastened. It's a myth that serial killers operate in very specific regions and that there is right. only one serial killer operating at any given time. Right. This throws the rule book out of the fucking window mm-hmm. and reminds us that the, we are not dealing with lab rats, okay? We're dealing right. with human beings. And I, I'm very much looking forward to that conversation as well because when you start pulling at the threads there, you know, the whole tapestry of serial killer expertise kind of just comes unraveling it does it does and every situation there is heartbreaking and honestly that i mean we'll get into it but (laughs) doing the research for that one made me like viscerally feel how vulnerable i am just walking on the street yeah and not like in inglewood just anywhere i happen to be just walking on the street yeah, I, I know we don't want to get season three started already, but, right. <laughs> but a highlight, underline, mm-hmm. exclamation point, all of what you just said, because yeah. it's 100% true. So please join us for next season. Thank you to everyone who has listened thus far. Continue, please, to contact us and give us your notes. We appreciate it. Uh, this is a labor of love, and we love the fact that people are t- getting something out of this. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death, was created and produced by us, Jonathan Sanchez-Leos and Meredith Halsey. Our theme music is the original Chicago Blues, which was composed by James White in 1915 and performed by Katerina Storchius in 2021. Artwork is by Laura Gosdell. Special thanks to everyone who helped make this season possible, including the friends and family who listened, gave constructive feedback, and offered advice and pointers on recording and editing. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe to Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death on your podcast app. Follow us on Patreon at Murderland Chicago. And find us on Instagram at Deep Dish of Death. Throughout the making of this podcast, we did quite a bit of research to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, but we know that sometimes information sources contain errors, and we accept that, in conversation, we may have introduced errors to the stories. To that point, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please send any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors to us at deepdishofdeath at gmail.com. But uh, this podcast is not about dick book. Nah, this podcast. <laughs> let me do that again. It's just it's fun to say, you know. It's it's really easy to mess up, which adds to the humor.